1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees. And...
1: I am Katie Rich, and I'm here with a super-sized crew today. I've got Richard Lawson. Hello. Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. David Canfield. Hello. And returning guests, by special request of so many listeners, and also us, Chris Murphy.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me back.
1: <laughs> uh, we are delighted, as always. We have a lot to talk about today. Richard and Rebecca are back from Cannes. We're going to catch up on the winners from that ceremony. Uh, Over Memorial Day weekend, we saw our first pictures of Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein. There's so much to discuss there, so much Oscar buzz in a single image Fire Island, the movie that, uh, Chris, you've discussed on the show previously and we're on the set of, is coming out this week. And then we are kicking off our Pride Month Oscar flashback series. Um, Every week in June, we are going to be looking back at a film with a connection to Oscar history and to queer history in one way or another. And we're going to be starting with Rebel Without a Cause. But let's start by flashing back to Cannes. First of all, Richard and Rebecca, how are you feeling? Do you miss the beach? Do you miss the French? Are you happy to be home?
4: I think I almost said mercy to uh, someone at a deli the other day. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, nope, 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 not there anymore. <laughs> uh, but that's it. I, otherwise, I'm fully readjusted to American life.
2: Yeah, I'm adjusted, too. I, I feel like having a few days without rosé in my veins is actually good for me. So you nice can get rosé at home, by the way. You don't it have doesn't taste as good <laughs> if you don't have a view of the sea. Let's just be
1: real yep. about it. Well, the awards happened on Saturday, I believe. After you guys were both on your way home, Uh, Triangle of Sadness won the Palme d'Or. It's the second Palme in like five years for Ruben Ostlin, I believe. Was that the big surprise for you guys, or was there anything else noteworthy from these awards?
4: I would say that was surprising-ish. The scuttlebutt had been that there was going to be a split, like a shared winner, like a tie, basically for Palme d'Or. That didn't happen. That happened in um, second place. And there were a couple other ties in the awards that were given out. But I think that much like The Square, Oslin's last film to win the Palme d'Or, I feel like Triangle of Status was probably a consensus choice. It appealed enough to enough of the members of the jury. Vincent Lindon, the the president of the jury, the French actor, had said in an interview that he did not want to be a tiebreaker. He He wanted it to be very democratic. And so this felt like a democratic pick in that it was big, splashy, pretty universally popular at the festival. uh, And so it won. And it also has a heap of social commentary politics in it that feel very relevant. So it's not like a completely toothless movie that just is nice and that therefore beat all the other more challenging films. It's a challenging film unto itself.
2: Yeah, I I wasn't surprised it won. You know, I feel like it was a film that a lot of people were talking about on the ground there, whether they loved it or not. It was definitely um, a point of conversation. And I think quite a few of the winners, I wasn't that surprised. You know, there'd been a lot of buzz, obviously, Decision to Leave, Park Chen wook one Director, which I wasn't surprised by. I was surprised, and maybe Richard has more intel on this than I do, about uh, Claire Denis' film tying for second place, because the buzz on that one wasn't so hot.
4: <laughs> yeah, that movie, to my mind, is legitimately awful <laughs> and oh, <no>. uh, Whoa. <laughs> it was uh, very divisive at the festival there was a, a definitely a, a vocal coterie of critics who really liked it um, and then there were people on my side of things who really hated it I didn't hear a lot of it was okay you know it was very polarizing um, and I wrote a, a, a kind of wrap-up piece um, that's on the website now if people want to read it about the whole festival or my experience at the festival and I think that maybe that's the mark of a, of a successful can film or regardless of the award it won that it was just like this very polarizing and very talked about movie some in the negative and some in the positive um and that shared billing or shared second prize with uh lucas don't uh film close which is from belgium and that movie i had been sort of whispered to me as like being going to be the big breakout it premiered on the second to last day of the festival uh i was really amped for it i did not like it Uh, I was very much in the minority there. So that was much less polarizing. There were a few of us who didn't like it, but everyone else seemed to go crazy for that sort of queer friendship story about middle school age boys.
1: And Lucas Stone's last movie, Girl, was a big deal at Cannes, but then got like, was really polarizing when it came out, right?
4: Yeah. I mean, my sort of joke on the ground there was that Lucas Stone has like a a piece of paper with um, queer issues that were written at the top and he's just checking (laughs) off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, his, I don't know what his next film is going to, you know, but they, they feel very didactic and sort of like issue movie. And look, that works for some people. Girl obviously played very well in France and not at all well in the United States for how it dealt with trans issues. This one is a far less controversial uh, in terms of how it approaches its subject matter. Although, again, I think Don't is a sort of crass manipulator of emotion. He stages twists and big things that happen in order to get a reaction from the audience that... I think he could have done a bit more delicately. And that was my major issue with that movie.
2: And the one other thing I wanted to point out that I thought was pretty exciting was the first feature award went to Gina Gamal and Riley Keough for War Pony. It was a film I really liked and was really impressed with, especially because it's their first time in the director's chair. And, you know, it's a story set on a Native American reservation. Um, they worked with writers who are Native American, lived on that reservation and really really their story. So um, that'll, I think, be a film that people should check out when it uh, finally does get released as well.
4: Yeah. And Keo's connection to that was that she met the two writers. They were extras in American Honey. Mm -hmm. And they were just, you know, between takes or whatever and got to talking. And she was like hearing these stories about growing up on a Lakota reservation. And she was like, you should make this a movie. And then they did. (laughs) It's an interesting mix of people from outside that community working with people from within it. And creating a movie that now is a can-certified award winner.
1: Uh, it also won the Palm Dog. I'm looking on Wikipedia, which is oh, a, the dog award is really, really cute. Oh, yeah, the yeah. there are a
4: number really, of puppies really in the film, but there's one main puppy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, Brit in War Pony is how it's credited, mm-hmm, so I'm assuming yeah. that's Brett. Uh, yeah, that's always an important award to keep an eye on.
4: Speaking of dogs, should we talk about Elvis? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean we will get there in a couple of weeks since the rest of us will get true. the chance okay. to uh, experience it. But uh it sounds like you you can't wait to get there.
4: But what a tease. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that that was like the the biggest premiere from the American selection at the festival. Um, and we I was about to see it when we recorded the podcast last week. And it half lived up to the hype in that Austin Butler is really great in the movie. I just wish Baz Luhrmann would actually make the movie about him <laughs> and not about Colonel Tom Parker and also Baz Lorman. <laughs> I, do,
1: I, I do think there's a contention of us here who have not seen it yet who keep reading the pans and being like, what? Yes, I want to see that, please. Yeah, yeah. it.
0: <laughs> directly into my veins. I have to see it. (laughs) I know.
1: Although I feel like, I think sitting down for two and a half hours with it is going to feel different than just reading you guys describing the insanity.
0: I mean,
4: the thing about it that, about you guys seeing it is that unfortunately after you see it, I'm pretty sure you won't then go to a beach party where there is a drone light show and the drones spell out Elvis several times in the night sky over the Mediterranean.
1: You don't know what I have planned. (laughs) Never say
4: never. (laughs) That's true. Okay, fair enough. I don't know what goes on in North Carolina. Okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we'll definitely get to Elvis. That feels like, uh, you know, in the summer, we're always kind of casting around for finding Oscar buzz. And like, I don't know if Elvis is a real one, but it's certainly worth our consideration at the very least. Uh, Well, backstage side and over Memorial Day weekend, um, Netflix did something that I'm sure they have done before. And maybe one of you guys remembers better, but um, they kind of sent out. An email blast with from the set of Maestro, and it's photos of Bradley Cooper as Leonard Bernstein uh, in a biopic that he is directing. Uh, Bradley Cooper is, of course, the director of A Star is Born, which is a uh, legitimately great movie. And to me, I think has earned uh, the right of I don't have the right to doubt Bradley Cooper because he tends to turn in really interesting things when he does this. But I think a lot of us kind of look at someone in like latex old age makeup and think like, OK, here we go again. But I'm still really interested in this movie because Leonard Bernstein is obviously a fascinating person worthy of this. Um, Anyone feeling more or less skeptical than I am? I, I, I want to believe in this movie and I want to withhold judgment is mainly where I landed.
3: I'm feeling intrigued and highly skeptical. I, I okay. the, sec, the second round of images that I don't think they blasted out that I think came out via Getty, like more set photos, where you see Carrie Mulligan caked in the old age makeup made me feel like, ooh, we, we're really leaning in here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and those efforts tend to be pretty hit and miss. I mean, I definitely have a lot of faith in him as a director. And... I have feelings about the nose and all, <laughs> I think it's it's all been covered pretty well online and I'm I'm pretty much right in the middle there.
0: So I have to say I when the photos came out I was like wow Bradley Cooper looks great who did they cast as that old guy but I did not Same. I did not realize it was him which I I, I think it could go either way I'm excited. I do think re- this is so crazy to say, and I think, Katie, you agree with me. Somehow Bradley Cooper is underrated, even though yes! he's Bradley Cooper, um, which is insane. So I do feel that the project is in good hands. I haven't seen those other images that you mentioned, David, and I am going to go directly Google. to <laughs> <com. laughs> Google.com <laughs> when this is over. But I do, I really, I'm I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm going to say I'm going to go fully optimistic on this one.
3: one. One other thing I'll say to avoid... At the risk of sounding like the cynic of the group, is there is a big report in the Hollywood Reporter today that we're recording about uh, Netflix stopping funding quote expensive vanity projects and they they mentioned stuff like The Irishman um, and that movie and
1: was incredibly expensive. It, it
3: was. I mean that is that is the height of um, you know that's the best example you could pick from. But I, I do wonder if there is a bit of counter PR happening there which is like we're still supporting these kinds of movies and mm, these kinds mm-hmm. of these kinds of very fully intensely realized visions from top names and filmmakers so
0: anyway just throwing that out there to wonder what Jake Gyllenhaal thinks seeing those photos cuz <laughs> he wanted <laughs> <laughs> he was sort of on the record really wanting to play Bernstein but i don't know i think Bradley i'm i believe in Bradley
2: I do feel like Katie, you missed your opportunity to to name the hair and makeup winner because I know, you know Kazuhiro <laughs> has won. The, he's just like a master, and and obviously won for Darkest Hour and Bombshell too. And right? Bombshell, yep. yes, and mm. and I think it'll be interesting because I do feel like sometimes there's this pattern where the main person who is being changed looks amazing, and then everyone else looks like uh, an afterthought. I'm curious to see those pictures that David mentioned because I haven't seen them either. But I feel like the hair and makeup award has already been locked and we should just call it a day on that one. (laughs)
4: I'm curious if the film is going to get into the fact that Jessica Chastain lives in Leonard Bernstein's old house across from Carnegie <laughs> Hall. I feel like no. that would be a really pertinent that's detail. The, that's the
1: entire third act, I think.
4: Oh, good. Okay, good. It's just her and her Italian count husband, like, redecorating. Or something.
0: What's her accent? <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah.
1: Does anyone know the story of how both Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg became producers on this, along with Bradley Cooper and various other people? No. That's fascinating. <laughs> I just, that's fascinating. <laughs> I th- I bet I think I heard Scorsese was supposed to direct
2: originally. I don't know about Spielberg.
1: OK. I mean, that's I guess that's well, generally how things like that. Happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Spielberg makes sense with West Side Story, I guess. Yeah. Right. Bit, right. Mm. So there's that connection. So maybe it was something he's on a Bernstein kick.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Chris, you mentioning Bradley Cooper being underappreciated. I, I feel like I just say this constantly. He's been nominated for nine Oscars, including four Best Picture Oscars, and has never won one. And it's, um, it's getting including a little Joker. crazy. Including Joker. Including Joker, Joker. Joker. <laughs> yeah. Until, until Nightmare <laughs> Alley, his last nomination was as producer of Joker, which is bananas.
0: Let's just erase um, that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he earned it. He worked hard on that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I think the Bradley Cooper Oscar narrative, like when is he finally going to win, is going to take over at some point. And, um, you know, might as well be for this one.
3: Yeah. Uh, strictly technically speaking, the transformation is pretty incredible. Uh, I will say that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, we want to see it in motion, right? Like, and I think yeah. a lot of times you can look at these photos and being like, what? He's unrecognizable. And then, you know, even in Bombshell, which is not necessarily a great movie, like, Charlize Theron's performance worked even under that transformation.
3: I've been a little bit disappointed of late by the ease with which we'll give an actor a transformation headline. Like, I think Jessica Biel's wonderful in candy, but that's not a transformation. She <laughs> that's, put a on, that's a wig. <laughs> that's a wig. That's one wig. So I am <laughs> so supporting this movie on those merits for now.
2: <laughs> Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala?
3: I'm
4: Cho Minardi, and this week on the run through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to the run-through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card
1: Well, this week, At Home, brings the release of a exciting new movie that, unlike Gun Maverick, you can see in your house. And Chris Murphy, you have been on the beat on Fire Island for us for a, a year now. You were on Fire Island itself on the set of this movie, directed by Andron. It's Finally out. It's a uh, the gay Pride and Prejudice. And actually, Chris, should I put you on the spot and say that we were talking about this, about how you had not read Pride and Prejudice, and then uh, before seeing this movie, which is such an exciting way to uh, to reverse engineer that story.
0: Oh, I
3: love that. Absolutely,
0: <laughs> blow up my spot. Haven't read it. Haven't even seen either of the like popular versions with Matthew McFadden, or you know, or even the other Pride and Prejudice. So this was really my first sort of foray into that material. And I got to say, I loved it. It's a really <laughs> great story. If you haven't heard about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the this, this story about a guy who seems like a jerk but actually is in love with you, it turns out it's an enduring uh, trope that people yeah. like to see.
0: People really, it really still hits in 2022. I've got to say, the movie um, really does adhere to sort of the Pride and Prejudice narr- narrative way more than I would have expected, having like now researched and like, gone in and learned more about Jane Austen. Um, and it's really like a classic, great, gay, queer rom-com that really hits all the beats, at least for me, that i think feel like a rom-com needs to hit without pandering to mainstream culture straight culture like it's really sort of unapologetically queer and goes into some sort of racy material a la the bros trailer but in a completely different way and i think it's like it's really it's not fun for the whole family but it's definitely fun for queer audiences for for the chosen family for the chosen family exactly (laughs) and it's about that too
1: it's about the the very literally about a chosen family
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I I think everyone, the sort of the the core chosen family of like Margaret Cho, Matt Rogers, Joel Kim Booster, Bowen Yang, Tomas Matos and Torian Miller, they all do really wonderful work. And I got to say, I got to shout out Matt Rogers and Tomas Matos really get in some hilarious one liners and quips. Katie, we were talking about which characters they're based off of, but they really, um, they really are hilarious.
1: They're the Lydia and the Kitty, I think is the name. The the, the dopey youngest Bennett sisters who mess everything up by being stupid, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that trope works very well in this movie.
0: Yeah, absolutely lives up to the hype. I think people who are familiar with Fire Island and just and that culture will appreciate it. And people who are familiar with the Jane Austen novel, Pride and Prejudice will also, there are so many entryway points into it that I really think, I think it's an absolute splash.
4: I, I think one thing about the film that works so well is that you, Chris, reporting that piece that you wrote for us, like we're on Fire Island. They filmed in the actual place and that makes all the difference for me. I think that it has such a great local specificity to it that might not, you know, people who have never been there might not be able to relate to specifically, oh, there's the Ice Palace and there's this and that. But I think it draws any viewer in because it is really like of its place of the title of the film they set out to make something that was really specific. And I think they achieved that, which is exciting to see.
1: Yeah. And as someone who hasn't been to Fire Island, I don't think it's alienating because I think it does a good job of like establishing what the culture of this really specific place is and leaning on it to frame what we we're like, saying is this very universal story and like really a, a sweet story when it comes down to it, even though there's like a lot of sex in the background and a lot of party drugs and that kind of thing. It's not shying away from things that might not be familiar to straight people, but it's it's all part and parcel of a story that I think anyone can get into.
4: Well, the sex and the drugs, that's made up for the movie. That's not oh, actually yeah. a fire that, island thing. It's actually yeah. a dry island, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of church going and, you know, things like that.
0: Needlework. Yeah. I will say, I do think its a, it's really, I don't want to use the word progressive, but because the movie is just de facto queer and it's just not, it's not really, you know, it's not a coming out narrative. It's not sort of like wrestling with what queerness is. And that's just sort of the baseline. It's able to sort of venture into these other avenues in terms of sex and drugs and also race and class and body image and sort of things that are below the, surface of queerness that we don't often get to in queer narratives in a really compelling way. I think Bowen and Joel have some really great, really, frankly, sort of like emotionally fraught and like very moving conversations about what it's like to be a, a queer person of color, a queer Asian American on that island specifically and also operating in the world that I just found so refreshing and wonderful that we were able to sort of break through the surface and that they really went there, which is fantastic.
3: Yeah, it's it's such a great proof of concept in a lot of ways. Like when you when you hear I used to cover books a lot and you hear like gay pride and prejudice and those lines (laughs) cover every subject line of every pitch ever, basically. But I feel like the movie does a pretty brilliant job of giving you this really full, thorough portrait of queer Fire Island culture and nestling into nestling it into, as you say, Chris, an extremely faithful imagining of Pride and Prejudice for that world. And I was just, I was very impressed by the deafness of that that balance.
2: Yeah, I think they really make it look easy to just welcome yeah, us all not. into this world, and it's not. And I also am not someone who's ever visited Fire Island, but I, I felt like I completely understood the setting and the world and sort of the culture of this area and and I, I especially want to give Margaret Cho a shout out like I just thought having this really impressive Asian American cast was just so exciting to see and the way those the that extra sort of layer is just part of the script and it's part of the story and just feels so natural and doesn't have to be sort of forced um, felt really special with this movie
0: and I, I like- uh, the star Joel Booster also wrote it and it's based mm-hmm. off of his experience. So it's like he's doing double duty as star and writer and he does really excellent work in both places.
3: He's a great comic. He's been a great comic for a long time. So those who know are very happy to see him get this showcase. But I, I must say that as great as the whole cast is, for me, it's just like Bowen Yang is such a star. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And to see him just run with a role like this and prove just how dynamic he is.
0: I talked with Bowen. I had a long talk with Bowen this week that's coming out, that should be coming out, I think, around when this podcast airs. And really getting into sort of how sort of difficult it was for him to go from SNL where he's doing sketches and it's fun and he can just let it go after every show, you know, nothing sort of like sticks with him, and you just go week to week to week to sitting with this character of Howie. And actually, initially in the first version of this really into like right before shooting, the characters were named Bowen and Joel, not oh, Noah wow. and Howie. Yeah. So it's that personal and that sort of deeply felt and actually they you know changed the names of the characters like sort of like pretty like soon before filming which allowed him to have some more space to like really sit with the character which i thought was fascinating but he does some really great work he actually not to give too much away but there's a a musical moment and he chose the song for the big musical moment Mm. um which was it's just a brilliant fantastic somewhat deep cut and a really nice performance. But yeah, it was it's really lovely to see someone who we've gotten so used to seeing just be, you know, hilarious on SNL and, you know, be an iceberg or be, you know, trade daddy, be like really the emotional core, the emotional yeah. center of this film.
4: Yeah. That musical moment uh, gave me a flashback to being in that exact venue in 2019 <laughs> and... Perhaps having had a few drinks, uh, heckling the performer on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did not start the heckling, but oh, no. it happened.
1: So. You were the
4: bad guy I apologize in Fire Island. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was way in the back. I was having a bad week,
0: okay. Uh, well, And also, Rebecca, I'm going to Fire Island this weekend, so if you want to come, please. <laughs> you're invited.
1: I, a question I had watching this, because, like, it seems, like, fun, but also very stressful. And, like, that's what the, the power of this movie is, that it gets into kind of the anxieties around going to a place like this. Chris, is Fire Island fun, or is it just about trying to, like, work out as much as
0: possible before you get there? You did hear Richard just said he was having a bad week. <laughs> um, and I've had plenty of those. It is fun, It is, but it is, like, as much as it is a microcosm of the world, it is this weird place where every single person basically, I'll say 96% of the people are queer people, You're right? It's this sort of like like-minded Lord of the Flies-esque place that is beautiful and gorgeous and unique, but also that comes with like you're under, a. it feels like you're under a microscope a little bit. So I would say it's like, it's not like a resort vacation where you're, you know, kicking it back on the beach drinking Mai Tais, but it is this sort of unique, it's unlike any place I've ever been. And I haven't been to Provincetown or. Palm Springs so I'm sure those places are like that too but um it's a weird it's I think it did a really great job of sort of capturing the essence of this like really fun yet also kind of stressful environment
3: I watched it while in Provincetown actually and (laughs) that was that was enjoyable (laughs)
1: like a a 40x experience (laughs) (laughs) Yes. yes exactly I wanted to shout out uh, Conrad Ricamora, I guess. I, mm. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, who is the the Mr. Darcy character, basically. And I knew him from How to Get Away with Murder, which I watched some of, um, but I knew I recognized him as soon as it started. And it's just like playing that role where you're just like stiff and mean for a lot of the movie and not betraying any emotion uh, is really difficult. And I think he, he does really well and strikes up this really nice rapport with Joel Kim Booster. Um, he's a very worthy successor to the uh, Colin Firth, Matthew McFadyen, uh legacy.
0: Oh, yeah. He also was recently Seymour off-Broadway in Little Shop, which is a complete 180 from this film. So he really does have the range. Looks great in
1: glasses.
0: Honestly, a sleigh.
1: Well, David, I want to toss it to you to pretty much kick off our Pride Month flashback series, which I'm really excited to do because June has always been this like interesting kind of like slow period in the Oscar season and a great time to look backwards. And this month for Pride, we decided to kind of do a Pride-themed um, Oscar flashback series. But the Oscar history with queer movies is really complicated, and we'll get into it a lot over the course of the month. Um, but for our um, Oscar issue earlier this year, David, you wrote about its it's particularly glaring track record with nominating gay actors specifically. Um, Do you -hmm. want to just lay out for listeners how grim this legacy is?
3: Sure. I mean, I I will say that this year broke a few of the, the bleaker streaks. Ariana DeBose was a very groundbreaking winner for Best Supporting Actress. We had Kristen Stewart nominated for Best Actress. She's, of course, engaged to a woman. So it's. I do have some hope that maybe these things are starting to change, but... Yeah, essentially, uh, in reporting out this piece, the thing that stuck out the most to me was the discrepancy between LGBTQ+, plus performers who've been nominated openly, uh, LGBTQ+, which was um, <laughs> not many, uh, Two have been nominated since Ian McKellen was the first and only man uh, who's openly gay to be nominated. And by openly, because this did come up a lot in the aftermath of The Post... We don't mean people who were just outed and had to kind of live with that. It's Uh, really
1: complicated when you get into
3: it. It's extremely complicated, and especially pre mccallum you know, 20th century actors, it's just a completely different environment. And you didn't have very many actors publicly living that way because their careers in many cases would end if they did. So it's hardly so simple, but there are several instances actually of actors being outed after being nominated. It gets quite ugly, which we can talk about more. But anyway, so there were very, very few queer identifying performers nominated. You can count them on one hand um, and you can compare that to at least 36 performers in the past two decades who'd been nominated who are not LGBTQ+, um, but were nominated for playing LGBTQ plus roles. And, And that to me gets at the heart of the issue of cis straight actors playing queer roles. Um, It's something we talk about a lot. I'm not someone who believes that every gay role should be played by every gay actor and so on. But when you look at that kind of gap, it's pretty undeniable who tends to get favored for those kinds of roles and who tends to miss out.
0: Today, um, Anjanae Ellis just came out as bisexual, so that as adds, yep. adds oh. another you know a queer performer who is recognized. But I don't know In if fact. that even counts with what you just said because this is after her Oscar. It, it does not count, unfortunately. So it but like, doesn't move the needle. But. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but still, I mean, you know, Elliot Page is another one whom, of course, we didn't know um, that he was trans at the time that he was nominated for Juno, but. That they all, of course, contribute to this vibrant community of LGBTQ artists in Hollywood who um, can't always initially identify as their true selves for various reasons, reasons that we are and are not privy to. It's a stat that I think more than anything reflects the challenge, the ongoing challenge in Hollywood of being able to identify that way and receive the kinds of opportunities that their straight and cis counterparts receive. And that's the ongoing issue.
4: And I think an especially insidious part of that that, you know, rears its head in an example, I think Philadelphia is a great movie. I think Tom Hanks is wonderful in that movie, Ditto broke back mountain. Those movies were 17 and 29 years ago respectively, which is not that long ago. And yeah. um they the one of the big selling points of those awards campaigns for those performers, Heath Ledger, Jake gyllenhaal Tom Hanks, was that it was brave. Mm-hmm. You know, oh look, they're 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 risking their Hollywood um profile, their identity to play these gay characters. Uh, Whereas the raver thing probably would have been an out gay actor doing that in those times, you know, even in 2005, like that would have been a big deal. So that language certainly, I think, is going away. But I still feel sometimes little hints of it here and there where an interviewer will be like, were, were you worried about doing this? You know, and I, I, I that framing is really gross, even though uh, it's been applied to movies that I think are great. And I wouldn't want a Brokeback Mountain with different actors. I think it's perfect with those two actors. I think Philadelphia is, you know, one of Tom Hanks' greatest performances. And so it's not that I would regret or, or wish that those particular films have been different, just, but the way they were talked about was pretty bad.
3: Yeah. I think it's definitely a particularly male problem to your point, Richard, in terms of the way we talk and look at, talk about and look at masculinity, um, on screen. And the notion of an actor going gay has long been an act of transformation, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, an act of, of bravery. It's at least it's been marketed that way. And yeah, this past year, Power of the Dog was definitely the, the example of, of a movie that was discussed that way. But I, I do believe the conversation around that kind of dynamic shifted. And you also had an actor in Benedict Cumberbatch, who I, I did get to profile for, this past season um, who was very thoughtful about the issue and very aware of how fraught and complicated it is. And, um, you know, questioning even openly whether he was perhaps the right person to take that role of Phil Burbank. So the fact that it has moved in that direction is I think a good sign.
4: There is a cut of that film where Jim Parsons is Phil, right?
3: (laughs) (laughs) And he's vicious. (laughs) Very different movie, but (laughs) yes, it's more boys in the band.
1: (laughs) Do you? I mean, we've gotten to a point where I think with trans characters in particular has it's changed really fast the way that we would accept uh, a cis actor playing a trans character, and we think about uh, Dallas Buyers Club and Jared Leto and how, or even Danish Girl after that, um, and how that just would not happen today. Do you? Do you think? I mean, David, you said you don't want only gay actors to play gay roles, but do you think we're moving to a different place of what we will and won't accept on casting for these roles?
3: Yeah. Yes and no. It seems like. While it is always a conversation and that's something that producers and casting directors have to probably factor in now, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily moved the me- the needle to the extent where it's like, we must cast a gay actor for this part in the way that it has for trans characters, um, which I do think is a separate issue. And I do think trans people need I everything mean, that's very settled, that trans people need to play trans characters and there's no real wiggle room on that. Um Personally, where we are in Hollywood and with more actors coming out, it's still a very slow, slow moving train. But um, yeah, I I would hope that at this point, gay actors are considered more foremost for gay roles. But I don't know that that's going to happen necessarily. But you you look to something just five years ago
4: where it's like. Nobody knew who Timothy Chalamet was. Why couldn't you find a like a 19-year-old yeah. gay actor? Mm. That I mean, mm. he's great in that movie, but like, you know, it, it's the kind of thing where it's it's still happening. And I reviewed uh the prom, the, the Ryan Murphy debacle.
0: Oh, God. Oh, God.
4: Uh, <laughs> and I, I kind of said in that, I was like, look, for the longest time I've been like, I don't mind when straight actors, you know, Timothy Chalamet's great, Heath Ledger was amazing, Bill Hader in the the Skeleton Twins, an incredible so good. performance yeah. by a straight actor playing a, a very credible gay man. But then I got to James Corden in the Prom, and I was like, you know what? I've rethought it.
1: Uh, no <laughs> it, 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 it.
4: We cannot be doing this in until like the, that has been atoned for. <laughs> we we have to be
3: auditing the act, yeah, you know. I, I, so. I thought that was such a humiliation on that movie's um, part. I couldn't believe that they did an
0: that abomination. But the thing that's sad, or that I think is maybe finally changing, not to bring it back to Fire Island, is that for a while, you know, 15, 25 years ago, there were no gay actors that were necessarily, not now, that's a big generalization, but there are not that many gay actors, and performers that were high profile enough or A-listy enough to sort of, I feel like, land these parts in these movies. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that casting directors and studios are always thinking about. I mean, we just saw like Tom Cruise just like saved the movies by being in Top Gun, right? We don't really have an equivalent of that necessarily specifically in movies i feel in the way that we have you know our neil patrick harris and jesse tyler ferguson and tv and then you know a host of broadway actors so hopefully with the sort of uh, i feel like this wave of queer cinema and queer films and performance that are sort of rising we get more a-listy talent that can uh, that studios are like yes lead this movie play this part we don't need timothy chalamet or god forbid james cordon <laughs> I think the the green light process is something that's been broken for so long. And it's
2: something that every time I talk to an agent or producer, you know, they have this same messaging, whether it's, um, you know, about this or about race, it's just like, yeah. studios still think we need that name. And obviously mm-hmm. there's a lot fewer opportunities for people to become that name. It's a sort of chicken and the egg thing, but I am curious what you, what you think, you know, I read that ingenue Ellis piece and, you know, she said nobody asked her through the whole yeah. awards campaign about her. You know, she wore a jacket that said queer on it at one point and no one asked. And, and I'm I'm curious because I feel like the language around this is changing so much. and, does press even need to ask about that anymore? Like how that shapes this casting yeah. conversation?
3: I, I mean, I'm sure Richard knows of a few as well, but I mean, I can't obviously identify them, but there are yeah. several actors I know of in Hollywood who are queer and who don't live a closeted life, but who are not out and who have not been outed. And it's, it is it is to that point, it is a different dynamic because it's not appropriate to ask that question. And so it it is, you know, their choice as to when they come out. And, you know, a lot of these actors have families, and they come from different kinds of backgrounds. And because they are public figures, when they choose to come out, it is not to a select few. It is to the whole world. And so it's, it's it's a very different set of challenges, I think, that also makes it challenging for us to navigate as people reporting on this, because maybe... Those, those in the know do know, and they are casting queer actors, and we just don't know it. Mm. But I did want to go back to something Chris said. If there's one strand of my piece that I would have followed up on a little bit more, if I had more time, it was something that came up a lot at the end, which was the generational difference. I spoke to Bill Condon, who is openly gay and who was nominated for writing Gods and Monsters, which starred Ian McKellen, who was also nominated for that role. And he was in the midst of casting a movie with a gay lead character. And he was very open about how challenging it was to find, you know, it's an actor of a certain age, middle-aged, and to find an actor who would help secure the financing who was openly gay. And he it was a real priority for him. And he just, he, he was in the midst of it. And he was very candid about how hard of a time he was uh, having doing that. That is one aspect of this that I do think will result in meaningful changes. Uh, as we heard, like Bill Maher go on his very sad rant the other <laughs> week about <laughs> younger people identifying more as LGBTQ. But, you know, that is a, in my view, a positive development. And I think that that is where you'll see more meaningful changes in the fact that just a greater percentage of younger people and thereby younger actors are identifying that way and, and bringing that forward in, in their art and in their their roles.
4: Well, I, I think, yeah, looking, you know, to Rebel uh, Without a Cause, like, and reading about that film and how there's all this coded queerness and actors and offset and, and Nicholas Ray, the director, like, were known, you know, sort of open secret bisexual or gay or whatever. We really shouldn't be doing the same shit that was happening 67 yeah. years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, th- there's a long history of this, but it, it's just, at a certain point, it's like, we can't rely on that as just how Hollywood functions, you know. Um, it's embarrassing that we're still doing a lot of the same stuff that was happening almost a century ago.
3: I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking
4: about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie, Challengers. It starts in Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle.
2: Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with the romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman and such we have it we have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two
4: is it a sports movie or a sex movie find out on critics at large from the new yorker new episodes drop every thursday wherever you get your
1: podcasts Well, Richard, you have led us to Rebel Without a Cause. Thank you for your <laughs> for your segue. Um, I was actually so there's a Wikipedia page called "List of LGBT Academy Award Winners and Nominees," and it is a crazy mess because it is. It's divided by category, and then it has who's nominated and who was out at the time and what they were identified as. And it has speculated to be LGBTQ and then a whole bunch of other people. And, you know, it's got people like Cary Grant, and Mar- like who was been speculated about forever, and Marlon Brando, who was, I guess, openly bisexual, but not at the time. I actually don't even know the story with Brando there. It's kind of nuts to, just to tell you what a complicated web this whole thing is. Um, But in the supporting actor category, uh, Salmoneo is at the top of the list chronologically, uh, nominated for Rebel Without a Cause in 1955. And his story of like he came out semi-publicly in an interview in 1972. Um, And I don't have a good sense of like how well known that was. And I think what was an open secret to people in the industry or people who paid attention and what audiences actually knew is something that's hard for us to know at this point. But as you were saying, Richard, like Rebel Without a Cause has been held up as this kind of paragon of 1950s filmmaking. It's one of the only three movies that James Dean ever made. But I don't think its place in queer film history had been as explicit, at least like not when I learned about it in film school 20 years ago. But I'm actually curious if that if the experience for other people was different. Had any of you known of this movie as as something that was explicitly queer coded from the very beginning?
4: I heard about it, but I thought it was just because James Dean's hot. <laughs> you know, and I, and I knew that like there was some off-camera shenanigans happening in the production of it, but I'd never seen the movie until we I watched it for this podcast. And, mm watching it i was like oh they meant that there's like really queer subtext in the actual yeah. movie mm-hmm. um, which i was surprised about and reading further about that there was sort of an intention to do more of it but like the Hayes code and everything was like the studio was like no 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 no, you can't do that I-, I think that's really fascinating that in that era that nicholas ray and the actors involved were like really pushing an envelope in a way that i was not aware of until seeing the film
3: mm-hmm. yeah I watched it for the first time in college. It was an assigned film for a history class on 50s culture or post 40s culture. And I went to a very small liberal arts school. So that aspect of the film was definitely brought forward in the way it was uh, discussed in the in lecture and in discussion. So I I did go into it with that understanding, and I'd also just come out. So it was a, it was, there's a whole lot going on there. And yeah, I just enjoyed the really lovely, palpable sexual tension between <laughs> Sal and James. And also, yeah, reading about it after the fact, because we didn't get so much into, you know, the way that it had been discussed in terms of queer theory and things like that. Um, but hearing the way Sal talked about it and this notion of like the first gay teenager on film was was really fascinating to me. And yeah, I mean, it's it's perhaps a cliche and an easy thing to say about a film like this, but... Yeah, it's it's a 50s movie that you could apply to today in terms of the same sort of challenges that a lot of movies face.
1: It challenges in terms of like how to get an actual like queer relationship up like front and center, or how much you have to hint at it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think all the time of shipping culture and queer baiting. Mm -hmm. And and, um, obviously that's so much more forward and present in the way we talk about pop culture now. But it's certainly there in a way where, you know, you can, just like we have today in a lot of relationships, you can draw as much as you want out of it. Um, And there's a certain degree of intentionality there, uh, as the filmmakers have talked about since. But especially if you're watching it then, you really take what you want from it.
4: I think that's something that works so well about the movie, even from a 2022 context, is that like for a lot of people who are queer when they're teenagers, everything is coded and latent and not Mm. spoken, and you're just sort of stumbling into discovery about yourself and maybe other people. And and so I I guess for me, in, in a weird way, the only difference between now and then, at least as it's viewed through this film, is everything around it, how it was marketed, how it was sold, the story that they told people they were telling, but in the actual world of the movie, that relationship between Plato and Jim feels like totally, you know, relatable to the present day. Um, Mm. And I think that's really fascinating that we have stuff like the recent, you know, Netflix hit uh, Heartstopper, which is about a very much out gay kid falling in love with a, kid who's sort of halfway out out of the closet. And um, that is definitely reflective of a more sort of open life that young people have now. But there are plenty of people who are not living that open life. And I think that is weirdly reflected in this movie that's practically 70 years old.
1: The way that Salmoneo talks about, you know, what he felt while making this movie, because he was 16 when this movie was made. He was pretty much new to Hollywood. He'd been on Broadway and like, like many child actors, his career was pretty much managed by his mother. And he basically makes it sound like he was really sheltered and didn't have any sense of being attracted to men uh, as he did later in his life. Um, he basically said filming this, this scene in the mansion where they're kind of all like kind of cuddled up together, imagining their lives as being a family um, outside of the families that they have. He said, I had no idea or understanding of affection between men. And for the first time, I felt something strong in that scene with James Dean. Um, I can imagine that he really was as naive as he says he was. I think we, he got very famous after this and it changed. But you feel like you see it on screen. You see this like kid who's kind of figuring it out as this movie is being made of like what it is possible to feel for other people and other people your age and that's, I think, a real huge strength of that performance.
4: Yeah, it's basically a kid going to theater camp. <laughs> <laughs> coming, coming back different, you know. With yeah. guns
0: um. and cars.
4: <laughs> Can this confirm. is the
0: state. <laughs> i i have to say it's really it's so sad what happened to salmoneo in terms of like he was speaking openly about being bisexual you know in the 70s and then you have to wonder like if he he was you know murdered by stabbed in the heart by a mugger and died when he was only i think in his 30s he's 37 so to imagine like you know the types of roles he might have played, or what you know, yeah. this, what uh, what could have been, you know, the potential there, and what we may have lost by losing him and James Dean, obviously, at such an early age, is really it just makes you wonder if maybe we wouldn't be having these same conversations about there are no, you know. Queer actors in the film industry, you know, it just, it just, it's just so unfortunate, and it's so tragic, and it's, it's so sad that so many queer narratives and actual queer people reach these tragic ends. Ugh, Are you ready me.
1: for me to blow your mind? He Salmane yeah. and Ian McKellen were born the same year. No. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it would have wow. been. They, the, wow. the casting of gods and monsters could have been totally different.
0: God, wow, that's crazy. You see, that's exactly what I'm
3: talking. That's yeah. wild. Wow. And, I mean, it's pretty remarkable that he was nominated as a teenager. I, mean, I know. He was, like, fifth youngest, I think. At, and he is the fifth youngest, which is really, given the role, given the kind of movie it is, um, it's a huge achievement on its own. Um yeah, it's It's really sad.
1: Yeah, I would love to know the behind-the-scenes machinations of how—because, you know, James Dean had made three movies, and he had died right before Rebel Without a Cause came out. So by the time this Oscars happened, he had already died. Um, and he was nominated for East of Eden and not Rebel Without a Cause. But I, I wonder if there was a strategist who was like, this is the one who'll get nominated for. We don't want to compete against each other. Like, all the campaigns that we ourselves talk about, how that horse trading might have happened. Oh, God. What was the
3: little—we need to find the little gold men of the 50s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Sal Mineo and Natalie Wood, who was also a teenager, um, were both nominated for this and both lost. Um, I was was reading the Salmoneo biography by Michael Gregg Michaud, um, and it talked about the 1956 Oscar nomination ceremony, which was a live half-hour televised event where the potential nominees were in the room. Um, And I have not been able to get more details on this. I need to look up more about it. But so Warner Brothers sends the people who they think are likely to be nominated, including Natalie Wood, and Salmoneo wasn't there because Nobody thought he was going to be nominated. And he was like at home and he told Natalie Wood, who kind of called him to apologize, that he was very happy not to have been there. But my God, what if they still did this? Could we bring it back? Be- yeah, <laughs> literally
0: bring it back. We need that. That would <laughs> be so thrilling.
1: I guess people like attended because the studios made them. But like, just imagine sitting there thinking like, because you're like, oh, I might be nominated and then not being nominated. I just I cannot imagine them pulling this off. That
2: also Um, proves to me that there were strategists back then because I uh like to imagine a world that there wasn't and everything was just pure and nice. But obviously that's not the case. It still existed even back then. Yeah. Uh, What I found interesting is I tried to read old reviews from this time to sort of see if anyone pointed out this storyline and and obviously Sal's role. And there's a lot of praise for his acting, but I really couldn't find anything at the time where they, you know, really pointed out that this existed. and, And most of it, I found it really interesting because a lot of the reviews were just like, you got to hope that your kids aren't like these crazy rebel kids, you know, and it kind of reminded me of the way people treated Euphoria when I came out recently mm. of like, look at these wild teenagers. And it's so interesting to see it now because it, it just seems so tame compared to, you know, when you look at something like Euphoria, but it really showed where it was hitting in the pop culture at the time.
3: So there was no, you're saying, highly touted, exclusively gay moment to <laughs> bring us back to the Beauty and the Beast discourse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> at least
1: we're not. I mean, I was just gonna say, at least we're not doing that anymore. But I actually feel like yeah, it's, it's it has not happening. been that long yeah. since Eternals came out, and it was like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Rebel Without a Cause is streaming on HBO Max. Um, I would really recommend watching it, especially if you haven't seen it. I I assume that um, those of us who did rewatch it or watch it for the first time also think it it, it holds up in an interesting way, right? Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just just kind of like a, a foundational, like, Hollywood thing. And it's actually the only James Dean movie I've ever seen. So I think now I need to go watch Giant finally, which Salmoneo is also in. So, yeah, go stream Rebel Without a Cause on HBO Max and tell us what you think.
3: Definitely melodramatic, I'll say.
1: Yes. Yeah, but also I think it's a, I think learning what acting was, uh, you know, because James Dean is, you know, he and Marlon Brando are kind of credited with, ed- with ushering in this new style of acting. And you can see it in this movie, too, which I think is a really interesting, like, a place to watch a pivot between generations.
3: Yeah, we were talking about Douglas Sirk before we started recording. I feel like pairing this with a Douglas Sirk movie would be a great 50s queer evening for you
1: our next year's flashback series (laughs) let's do it
3: (laughs) there's a great quote in a vanity fair piece about nicholas
4: ray where i think it's his his former wife says that everyone said that oh james dean was just copying marlon brando and she's like but i watched that movie and it's so clear he's copying nick like which i think is such a sweet sort of memory or 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 reinterpretation of, of what james dean's doing in the movie
1: yeah, there's a piece uh, about Nicholas Ray uh, from the 50th anniversary of Rebel Without a Cause, uh, written by Sam Kashner in 2006, that is also really worth reading. Um, just about how this movie was made and how Natalie Wood was having an affair with Nicholas Ray and Dennis Hopper on the set of this movie. Uh, and apparently, Gore Vidal said in his memoir, uh, based on I don't know how many facts, that Nicholas Ray was having an affair with Salmoneo. Anyway, it's a good read, too.
4: It involves a kind of sad anecdote involving the Cannes Film Festival as well.
0: Full circle. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That does it for this week's show. We'll be continuing our Pride flashback series with BPM, the 2017 French film that was submitted for the Best International Feature, but not nominated, which we will talk about in addition to many other things. So catch up on that with us and join the conversation. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, and on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David.
3: David Canfield, 97.
1: And Chris. Chris-tress. Our producer and editor is Brett Pukes. And this week's award for the best description of the Little Gold Men recording studio goes to Chris Murphy.
0: It's this sort of like like-minded Lord of the Flies-esque place.
1: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q A.